everyone, and welcome to One Great 150, our uh, 150 years of Winnipeg History Project. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we are joined by friend and producer Nick. One Great Fire. <laughs> We've been joking about fires. <laughs> I'm assuming you're, cu- are you leaving that in or are you cutting that out? No, I don't know. <laughs> oh, we'll see then. A fun little mystery for the listeners. Yeah. On at this bit. Maybe it'll sense. be at the end of the episode. Ooh. Keep listening. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Today's episode is about uh, not, not not fires. fires. <laughs> there is a fire, but not like fires broadly. Uh-huh. <laughs> that we had been joking before we Unless started. Unless it's like the burning passion for the arts that we all Ooh, have. Ooh, that's a really good way of framing it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we're talking about uh, Gwyneth Lloyd and Betty Ferrali today. Do you know about them at all, Alex? Um, I know where their one of their houses was. Yeah. Because we live near it. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know that they founded the ballet. Yeah. That's it. That's all I got. That's probably more than a lot of people yeah. know. <laughs> so I'm going to open the episode not with a bit about them. I'm going to play um, a game where I make you uh, guess the year I'm starting the episode oh, in. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've got uh, three clues. Um, the top single of the year is The 12th Street Rag by Pee Wee Hunt. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, nine... No, I've got more clues. <laughs> okay, but can I guess yes. based on one clue? Yeah. 1927. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Winnipeg's mayor is uh, Garnet Coulter. It's his fifth year. Okay. A massive flood is coming into Winnipeg in the spring, evacuating small towns. Ah, is it the 50s? No. No? What? <laughs> Which flood is it? You'd think 1950, but it's 48. Ah, different flood. Okay. <laughs> a different flood. Um, okay. I told my boyfriend this bit and he didn't laugh at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, those are facts about 1950. Well, he was like, that's not a funny joke. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, wait. What's the single again? The 12th Street Rag by Pee Wee Hunt. That does not sound like a 1950 song. It really doesn't. That sounds like an old, like, ragtime jazz thing it that does. they do in, like, the jazz singer. I don't know what was going on in 1948. Yeah. That was what my quick Google told me. There I could be wrong. But, yeah, it's 1948. Okay. There's just a lot of floods is the thing. I feel like Winnipeg doesn't get threatened by them as much anymore. No, well, we built the floodway. So it doesn't occur to us how often that Winnipeg was being flooded. Right. So, no, in the spring of 1948, Winnipeg is preparing for a flood. For a flood. For a flood. <laughs> for a flood. Um, Emerson near the border is three feet underwater. The 25 people there is evacuated. Uh, is there only 25 people uh, And Morris, Emerson? the local milk plant shuts down, <gasps> threatening a milk shortage. Oh, no. <laughs> and then um, a bunch of livestock outside of town are, like, marooned on a hill. Oh, <laughs> Is this before the dike? Yeah, it would be. The dike comes after 1950. <laughs> you know what a dike is now? You Have you remembered? Yeah, because you taught me what a dike is by telling me it was um, an opposite moat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it worked yeah it did now i remember that <laughs> so um winnipeg has a whole like emergency flood relief committee in place uh it's not it's not as bad as like some earlier floods but there were some concerns that it was going to be as bad as an 1897 one yeah there were a lot of crazy floods in the 1800s yeah so like winnipeg as we know it now didn't exist yet so the way Winnipeg had been set up is that we're kind of in the center of this big sort of like donut of municipalities, essentially, yeah. right? So um, other places are kind of stuck in worse situations. So like the town of St. Anne's okay. is evacuated because they're different townships. Yeah. But Winnipeg itself is kind of okay. There's military on standby in case the floods like 
in case the rivers converge and the water gets too high. Mm-hmm. And then by um, later in the later in spring, there's water in the basement of downtown buildings. Uh oh. This includes uh, the Pantages Theater. Um, they shut down their heat and water, and the Wheat Pool Building has water in their elevator shaft. Oh. <laughs> Uh, the issue here is that amidst all of this, a ballet festival is trying to take place. Okay. The show is meant to have, like, the Vancouver Ballet, uh, the Boris Volkoff Ballet from Toronto, and the Rousseau or Company all at the Playhouse. So they had to make a last-minute switch to a synchronized swimming oh! <laughs> showcase. I wish. Can you imagine, like, the show's in the basement of the Pantages Playhouse Theater. Yeah. <laughs> you all stand in knee-deep water and we sort of splash around. <laughs> it's interpretive. <laughs> yeah. So, at the last minute, the show is moved to the Odeon Theater, okay. which we would better know now as the Burton Cummings. Oh. And the Vancouver Ballet can't come. They basically cut it for funding reasons. And then they get bumped up to, like, a double bill. All of this stuff is, like, it's just chaos behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Um, and organizing the festival is uh, the women behind the Canadian School for Ballet, okay. Gwyneth Lloyd and Betty Hayferali. Nice. Uh, so... They'd founded the ballet in 1938, shortly after their arrival in Winnipeg. So it was the Winnipeg Ballet School, and then um, the Canadian, or the Canadian School for Ballet, and then the Winnipeg Ballet. Okay. And the way it was working is the ballet school was funding the actual like ballet itself. Oh, so I see. Students would pay okay. a little bit of tuition, and then that money would go into the company, mm-hmm. and they would take dancers from the school into the company. So it's a stressful uh, year for them. Mm-hmm. 1948's probably <laughs> a, a bit of a disaster. I guess a stressful year for a lot yeah. of people, probably. But. Lloyd and Frawley have been friends for, like, years, mm-hmm. since well before they founded the ballet in Winnipeg. Uh, they'd met earlier when Frawley had en- enrolled as a student at Lloyd's Ballet Studio. Okay. So they're both from England. Uh, Gwyneth is the daughter of a car manufacturer who fancied himself an inventor. I'd love to- okay, <laughs> I'd love to know more about that. Unclear what that means. Yeah. But I think largely what it means is that for Lloyd, her father is a little more working class. Okay. And that he- Works on carts. Sure. I guess you'd expect that, you know, someone who founds a ballet school would come from a more kind of upper class The thing background. is, her uh, maternal grandmother is a little more fussy. Uh. And is like, you're going to have a governess, you're going to go to boarding school, and, like, pays for her to go to all of these fancier uh, okay. things. That, yeah. that makes sense. So, she goes to a, like, primary school. Um, Lloyd loves it, her sister hates it. <laughs> but it helps that Lloyd was pretty athletic. She was playing, like, every sport available at the school. And then when she is at Northwood College, she goes to see a performance of the ballet in London. And as she describes it, everything had been pastel before and suddenly there was all this brilliance. Oh. So she falls in love with ballet and the gymnastic teacher at the school was a woman named Bertha Knowles. She had studied at the um, Liverpool Physical Training College. Okay. (laughs) And there's all these like dance schools that have these very like strange names. Yeah, the Physical Training College is not what I would think of as a a ballet school, no. But because Lloyd had really taken to Bertha Knowles over the course of her like school year, she actually also goes to the physical, okay, uh, the physical training college, where she learns like a bunch of different like dance forms. Mm-hmm. She winds up not liking the classical ballet style so much. She really likes Greek dancing. All right, I've and never heard of Greek dancing. It's, I don't know how to explain it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but she likes more contemporary dances. Mm-hmm. Is basically the point. And she comes out of all of these years of schooling. With this, like, real passion for dance, and she sets up her own uh, dancing school in Leeds with financial help from her former teacher oh. and her teacher's husband. And then it's at this school in Leeds that Lloyd meets Ferrelli. Uh So she's born uh, Betty Hay. She is born to a, like, wealthier brewing family. 
and apparently she was a bit of a uh, wild kid. Okay. Uh, when she was in school, she used to lead midnight ghost hunts around the school grounds. Oh, that's fun. And when she left at 17, the only social graces she had acquired were a good lacrosse game and an ability to eat dessert gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> she had wanted initially to be a vet- veterinarian, but her grades were not good. Oh. <laughs> I think she was leading ghost hunts. When and she like, should have been studying. <laughs> um, so she convinces her parents to let her pursue her second passion of dance. Okay. They don't want to send her to London, though. That's mm. a little far away. I think it's a little too urban. So she's like, well, could I go to Leeds huh. instead? Um, so she goes to the ballet school in Leeds. And at the school, students actually take part in like chores to run the building. Mm-hmm. She um, hadn't had to do chores before because she was born into a wealthier family. Oh. So um, doing dishes was a bit of a new experience. She was like hiding them around the building so she wouldn't <laughs> have to do them. She wasn't can even... Only, you can only keep that up for so, so long. long. She apparently also, like, wasn't the most, like, studious person at the school either, but mm. she took a real liking to Lloyd, and Lloyd l- liked her also. So, eventually she graduates, she gets a job somewhere else, and then finally, Ferrali returns to the Leeds school as a teacher with Lloyd. And they finally become friends properly. Okay. So how old are they at this point? Like, mid to late 20s? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lloyd comes to Winnipeg in 1937 with the Knowles family. Bertha's husband has been invited to, like, oversee physical education in our schools. Oh, okay. What? I think we're coming into the time where, like, the health of the nation is becoming oh, increasingly a concern, right? right? I feel like that was a big, like, World War Two, Yeah. World, and so, World War One thing. So we're teetering, I would say, into the era of square dancing in schools. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Knowles' husband was the supervisor of physical culture and folk dancing in Winnipeg schools. Oh, square dancing. So he held that job from, like, 1929 to 1938. Okay. So Lloyd's just paying a visit. And in the meanwhile, Ferrali is just, like, out partying and having a series of suitors in London while Lloyd's here. (laughs) But the story goes that, like, Lloyd comes to Winnipeg and is talking about the ballet to someone that's, like, never heard of it. And just like, I haven't heard of the ballet before. And Lloyd goes... You will. Okay. <laughs> that's, I don't know why that's so wild to me to think that you, you might not have heard of the ballet. It might also but be a fake story. That's okay. That's a good point. <laughs> um, but when Lloyd comes back, she's now had the idea that like, maybe she could go to Canada. Mm-hmm. There's like clearly no like real ballet company in Winnipeg. So she mentions the idea to Ferrali, who apparently replies, well, if you want any help, I wouldn't mind giving you a hand. I'm ready to take a look at the rest of the world. Okay. That's so casual. <laughs> um, one, one like reason for this might be that she had recently been uh, dumped by a man who left her to become a monk. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's pretty crushing. So within a week of that conversation, they've booked a trip to Winnipeg. Great. At the time, uh, Gwyneth is 36, Betty is 23. And Canada's not, like, completely without ballet. It does exist in the country. Yeah. <laughs> so, hypothetically, people have heard of it. There's the Boris Volkoff Ballet that's been around since, like, the 1930. But any professional ballet company going through Canada were probably uh, Russia and other European touring shows. Mm-hmm. They were, like, coming through for an occasion. So, in Winnipeg, they rent space at uh, 333 Portage Avenue, which is the, like, APTN building. Oh, by okay, the UW yeah. now. And they call themselves the Canadian School of Ballet. They formed the Winnipeg Ballet Club. And they actually start offering a free tuition to accepted students. How, how is that going to be sustainable? 
Well, <laughs> we'll find out. Okay. But what do you think a bunch of Winnipeggers would do when offered a free thing? <laughs> They're going to jump at that chance, I think. Uh, yeah, people sign up like you would not believe. And then other dance studios in Winnipeg get annoyed. Ah. Because suddenly all of their dancers are like, there's this free school this one's down free, the road. <laughs> <laughs> and to all of these complaints that they're like stealing business, Lloyd responds, if I wish to give away a pound of butter with every lesson and has nothing whatsoever to do with you, <laughs> I shall do whatever I want to do. Good day. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I love her. Right? <laughs> so she's going to keep offering free tuition, essentially. Cool. Yeah. So some of these other schools were like offering ballet to some capacity but like not like professionally trained and not with like i think the vision of starting a company out of it down the line right so lloyd is generally pretty polite and well-mannered but also um very stubborn (laughs) (laughs) and then for all he can be uh pretty like demanding and theatrical so they work really well as a pair to run this Mm -hmm. lloyd handles more of the like directing and admin and for all he's more of like coordinating all of the ballerinas okay I wonder if, like, the other dance studios of the time weren't more, like, sort of practical dancing. They probably were, too. Right? Like, like, the kind of dancing you do when you go out to dance. Like, if you go to, like, one of the beaches where there's a dance hall. Yeah. I mean, probably, too. So, a few years into being in Winnipeg, Betty meets John Ferrali. The pair get married, and they have a son named Richard. John is a pilot for the Air Force, so Mm. they bounce around. She's in Carberry with him for a little bit, and then Alberta. But she eventually just, like, gets bored of it. Okay. And comes back to Winnipeg to keep running the ballet. Oh, like with her husband or no? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's just straight up like, I don't want to be in Alberta anymore. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> so she comes back to Winnipeg and like the ballet has not done much while she's gone. Lloyd has just kind of kept it afloat. Okay. Um, and then shortly after they get back, um, when their son Richard is 10 months old, John dies in a military operation in the Second World War. Yeah. Because of course it's the 40s and that's happening. Mm-hmm. Which means that uh, Lloyd and Ferrali wind up raising Richard together over the course of like, okay. their time in Winnipeg. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that is their start. That's their first like couple of years in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Cut to a decade later, they have this ballet. It's been running for 10 years. Their big festival is now about to be flooded out. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> We're back in 1948. Um, Lloyd is the director, Ferrelli is the ballet mistress, and they've got a man on the team called David Yudeau. He'd been around since 1939 when he'd started as their stage manager and, like, tech assistant, but by this time he has the catch-all title of stage manager. Okay. So he's doing everything. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he was doing stuff like fundraising and, like, coordinating venues and helping Lloyd with whatever she needed. If this isn't the story of every arts organization. <laughs> <laughs> right. But weirdly, when he met Lloyd and Ferrelli, he didn't even like them that much. Oh, really? They'd met at, like, the introduction of a mutual friend. They didn't totally click, and then like, I think they went to a couple of parties together, and then he realized they had good taste in booze. Oh. And I was like, well, they had all the good gin. Yeah. So I liked them. So that's what brought him around on them. Yeah. So the three become friends, and he had, like, stage managing experience already. He'd gone to, like, school for it. Okay. So he'd been managing, like, dramatics companies in the city. And together, the three of them get nicknamed uh, the Holy Trinity, because they are very much like the driving force of this ballet. And together, they had been working for a time on this original ballet called Chapter 13. Okay. The group had wanted to do a, like, comedy, and then came on this idea of, like, doing a whodunit. Oh, that's, whoa, that's fun. And then, apparently, the three of them go up to Lloyd's Victoria Beach Cottage, and they they seem to have gone up there a lot. A reporter talks to Yudo, who's like, 
Oh, there's a rule that the last person who goes up to the cabin has to bring the meat and the butter. Because <laughs> okay. we had a bag of the meat and the butter and he was going on up. And they were listening to uh, Gershwin's concerto. Right. To like try and see if they could come up with something for that. And they leave with this idea of like a like 1950s gangster murder mystery pastiche. Okay, that's really fun. Isn't it? And then they come home, and then, you know, when Lloyd go talk to their friend, Alan Jenkins, who is just a murder mystery, you both know. <laughs> and he writes the story. And then Ferrelli starts planning the dancing. They have a woman named Dorothy Phillips designing the costume. She's with the ballet for a while, and she's just doing this for fun. <laughs> and these costumes are, like, mobsters and sailors and waitresses. Oh, there I are would... photos of the performance. Oh, okay, cool. And they're so, like, bright. Yeah. They're not in color, but you can tell, like, how crazy everything must have looked on the stage. Um... Yado is using gag pen names, saying it's written by Joe and Josephine Blow. <laughs> so, I'm going to bold this, and I'm going to have you uh, read out the plot of chapter 13. The scene is a dark side street in New York on a sultry summer night. A young girl and her artist boyfriend and the cop with Nora, who works at Barney's Coffee Shop, are dancing together when the girls from the burlesque house come out of the theater between shows. Dawn O'Day, the burlesque queen, with Ace, her racketeer lover, make trouble for the young people. Nora is now off duty for the night, and she and the cop dance happily with the girls until they are interrupted by the jealous Ace, who sends his thugs to bump off the young artist. But even Dawn O'Day has a heart, uh, which has beaten faster for the unhappy man, and she implores Ace to spare his life. In vain she pleads and cajoles, but he slaps her face in fury, while the crowd is aghast. When the gunmen return with the victim, the cop is shot by Ace while trying to save the artist. Nora and the girls mourn the death of Tim, the cop. The sailors on leave join the two Puerto Ricans from the dockside in the hunt for the gunmen. Don O'Day, furious at the treatment she has received, gives her gun to Nora uh, th so that vengeance can be wrought on the gangster by the grief crazy girl who had loved the dead cop. Ace is enticed to his death by the seductive wiles of Don O'Day, but Nora, terrified of the possible consequences, died by her own hand before the horrified gaze of her former friends. Uh, this is too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of moving parts. For a ballet especially, I feel like often about, like, You've also only seen The Nutcracker. Okay, this is true. <laughs> and I will say that the plot of The Nutcracker is like, there's a party, there's a dream. There's another party. Many people dance in the dream. Yeah. And then they play outside for a little bit. Yeah. See, it's a busy show. Yeah. Um, at rehearsals, a reporter comes by to visit and see how things are going. And the headline reads, Ballet star not dead enough. Festival just a few days away. Not dead enough. <laughs> apparently they're practicing the scene where the cop is shot and like falls to his death. Uh. And Ferrelli just keeps going, you don't look dead enough. Do it again. <laughs> So chapter 13 is supposed to uh, debut at this festival, essentially. It comes out a little bit earlier in the fall of 1947, but like the ballet festival is the big chance to show it off to everyone. Because okay. the ballet festival is, you know, his idea and it's inspired by this fundraising attempt to go to Copenhagen that fails. All right. <laughs> they want a tour in Copenhagen, they can't. And then, you know, is talking to someone from the Boris Selkoff group and realizes they've also struggled the same way and is like, mm. why don't we all get together? Sure. So he kind of pitches this idea of, like, a national ballet festival in Winnipeg where a bunch of companies from across the country come out, show off, like, old and contemporary dances, instead of seeing just, like, Swan Lake alone. Yeah. It was going to be, like, everyone showing off their best talents. Cool. 
there are 75 dancers, several troops coming in. This is the first ballet festival in Canada. Hmm. And it's attracted stuff um, like the lieutenant governor and his wife, the ministers for Australia and India. Like, pretty big-name politicians are going to come out. There's, like, consulate members coming along. And it seems like it's going to be this big thing with the Pantages Theater. And then 72 hours before opening night, the basement floods. Oh, no. Um, This is predating Duff's Ditch, of course, so water gets into downtown pretty often. Um, The group goes to the Odeon, which is the Walker Theater, and is like, we would like this venue. And they agree, but the venue costs are too high to pay for travel costs for everyone. Mm -hmm. So they cut out the Vancouver Ballet. Oh, okay. And then they have another issue, which is um, a little weirder, that the Odeon has some structural issues. Okay. There's less than 300 seats, which is the main problem. Mm -hmm. The ballet had sold out of the Pantages, which has more seats. If you're porting over the venue, you lose Uh, tickets. Yeah. So who gets the refund? Right. So that's causing a whole bunch of issues, like disgruntled patrons. But, um... So the Odeon now is, like, functionally mostly a movie theater, but they have had, like, other live shows coming through. And when Yido comes in with the technical crew, they find out the stage has been almost destroyed. Like, to make room for the screen? Is no, or... because it had an elephant in the building. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a very, that's, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, no, there was a circus playing at the Odeon. Uh-huh. They walked in and the elephant had damaged the stage. Huh. Luckily, they have some talented friends. One is John Russell, who is an architect in the city. So he's with uh, Moody and Moore Architects. He's a professor of architecture at the U of M. He loves theater. Okay. This has been like his side thing. He helps with the ballet all the time. At one point, his wife had told him, like, you could just do theater full time if you <laughs> And because he's basically head of this faculty, he mandates that anyone in the architecture faculty has to also be a member of, like, what is it called? Uh, the Honorable Guild of Stage Craftsmen. Okay. Which means helping at the U of M's theater department and helping with off-campus projects. So mm-hmm. Russell rounds up some people and they come and they fix the stage overnight. Wow. He calls in a ton of favors. Yeah. <laughs> and shockingly, it somehow like comes together by the end. So they play Friday night and Saturday afternoon with the Sorrel and Volkoff companies. And there's this big Saturday evening finale with like the fancy guests and the consulates. And it's a pretty tightly packed show. There's three acts. and Well, there's supposed to be three acts with three intermissions. <laughs> um, the issue is that Yudo is the house manager, too. Because mm-hmm. he's doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes out into the lobby after the opening festivities to find there's a Mountie there waiting. What? he's like, what time is this over? Okay. And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what, what do you want? <laughs> and then he finds out that the lieutenant governor is planning on leaving after seeing the Winnipeg Ballet without seeing any of the visiting guests. Oh. And Yudo's like, well, that's not going to do. Like, I mean, first of all, rude. Exactly. So he runs backstage and he (laughs) tells everyone they're like, okay, no intermissions. (laughs) We're cutting everything. It is a three hour. It's like a three X show altogether. Oh, man. I feel like the lieutenant governor is just going to be like sitting there fuming like, wait a minute. (laughs) I had plans. Um, So it is like pretty breakneck then. One of their dancers, Arnold Sfor, actually collapses backstage because he's so tired. (laughs) Um, Sfor is like, he's been a dancer with the company for a little bit by this point. He's also like a pretty interesting figure in the history of the ballet. Um, he was working a day job as a piano teacher. Mm -hmm. Most of the people with the ballet had day jobs. So they're doing this crazy like chaotic festival in between like teaching piano and doing whatever else Svor wasn't like the greatest um with the footwork part of ballet a co-worker said he had big flat plates as feet <laughs> but he was really good at like lifts okay 
That was his big thing. So other people were got to be graceful, and he was just sort of tromping around, lifting yeah. people. But he was also handsome. Ah. <laughs> um, he was six foot three. Apparently had pretty long legs, and someone once said he had a profile in the Barrymore tradition. Okay. <laughs> like the old, like, Barrymore family. Sure. And, like, yeah, he's kind of a handsome guy. Okay. So, like, what it's kind of what you want on stage for someone who's doing, like, all of the heavy lifting. Right. Um, he rec- he joins the ballet in 44 when he realizes he can combine his love of sports and music. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he walks in, and Ferrali says, He was led into the room by his brother Richard like a lamb to the slaughter. I thought Arnold was... Uh, too old and then too big, and then he smiled his charming smile, and I was sold hook, line, and sinker. Oh, that's very cute. <laughs> right? Well, it is interesting, because I think now, like, um, the way the ballet works is you start doing it when you're, like, six. I mean, typically, like, yeah, a lot of ballerinas will start very, very young, because, like, you need your joints to be able to move in a very yeah. specific way. Yeah. No, to be, like, in your 20s or whatever and just walk in and be like, I want to do ballet professionally. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a handsome face. Yeah, and it works. Yeah. He becomes a star of the ballet for, like, quite a long time. We'll hear more about him later. And he genuinely works so hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, he collapses at this <laughs> festival. And despite the disasters and the fact that there's no intermission, <laughs> the show is very warmly received. It come, Like, out of this comes the National Ballet Association. There's all kinds of positive comments about Winnipeg and the Prairies themselves. Nice. Um, the Daily Vancouver Province writes that the ballet here was as wide and free as the spirit of the prairie, fresh as the wind that sweeps across it. Here is the breath and virility of the, of the Middle West. Strong in technique, uninhibited in feeling. Oh, that's that's actually very nice. Very flattering. So, yeah, there's high praise. Everyone loves it. Winnipeg seems to be kind of, like, on the map a little bit. Yeah. Do you think, like, at this point, Winnipeg still had the reputation of being a little bit rough and tumble? Or, like, I don't know, have we cleaned that up a little? I don't know so much. The vibe always seems to be like, stuff can't come from Winnipeg because we're not Toronto. I mean, sure. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be kind of like a continued feeling for a while. Mm -hmm. And we'll hear a bit about that also later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But no, there just seems to be, I guess like there's no like real long lasting ballet company Mm -hmm. in Canada yet. So like this is us showing up and it's like, oh, maybe Winnipeg has something here that like no one else has yet. And it helps that the dancers are so talented. There's Arnold's four, of course. There's Eva von Jensi. She uh, flees. She flees Europe during the war, and then starts working as a housekeeper for a like sort of supporter of the ballet, and then starts working for the ballet instead. Oh, okay. So apparently, her like employer kept being like, "I can't find her. She's always here. <laughs> She's always at the studio." <laughs> But she would often dance with Sphore. They were apparently pretty good dance partners, but they would, like, bicker. Ah. Because she was like, I'm very, like, European and free, and he's yeah. very technical. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also have Patty Stone, who was, who would go on to do, like, pretty big things. So he's a student at the ballet school, and then he goes on to perform in Annie Get Your Gun. And then goes on to choreograph movies like Vic- uh, Victor Victoria with Julie Andrews. Okay. And dances with Gene Kelly. Oh, Cool. So yeah, like, a lot of talented dancers do come out of this, like, early period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, like, after the flood, the ballet starts trying out some new contemporary shows. Okay. Because obviously Lloyd's never been a fan of the classical stuff, which is why she's doing stuff like a murder mystery whodunit. Right. <laughs> um, so there's this kind of, I think, pressure to do, like, the classics. Yeah. Like, we want to see Swan Lake, or the Nutcracker wasn't really a big thing yet, but, like, we want to see the big ones. And she's like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. I will not be doing that. Yeah. We're going to make our own. So, um, <laughs> um, David Adams, who dances the company, described them as a tits and teeth company. Okay, what? 
I don't really know what that means. Okay. So they had like a lot of passion and virility on the stage. Everything was like very high powered. Mm-hmm. So lots of like big lifts and throwing and really flinging yourself into stuff. Okay. <laughs> and then um, obviously chapter 13 is their big original performance so far. There's one called uh, The Wise Virgins that comes out a little earlier. Hmm. Frawley dances in that when she's pregnant with her son. Oh. <laughs> like visibly pregnant with oh, her son. Oh, that's interesting <laughs> given the name. Yeah. <laughs> um... The issue comes in when George Gershwin's or George Gershwin comes in and is like, we're going to sue you if you keep using our music for your ballet. Oh. <laughs> they haven't paid for it. So they track down a guy called Robert Fleming. He's a Saskatchewan composer. He's only 26. And they have him write a whole new score for Chapter 13 before it's going to go on at the Eaton Auditorium in Toronto as part of a tour okay. in Eastern Canada. It is finished four hours before the show. Oh, my God. Because, like, do you not have to re-choreograph things when you no. do? Okay. <laughs> No, he was given, like, the notes on the choreography, and apparently gotcha. he wrote to that. And everyone that was performing, I guess, knew the dances so well, they didn't need to hear the new music. They just kind of knew what their steps were. Right. So they hear it for the first time right before they go on. And then they perform in front of this big Toronto audience, and they are once again well-received. Everyone's cool. talking about, like, the liveliness of Winnipeg and its ballet. There's another ballet festival in 1949, this time in Toronto. And the Winnipeg Company heads off to perform. They get ballets and they get uh, bouquets and accolades. And then someone from the United States is there and it leads to their regional ballet festival. So we're like kickstarting this weird like domino chain. (laughs) Everyone's got to have a ballet company now. Yeah. But another thing is happening in 1949. Winnipeg is turning 75. Ah. Um, We're going by the like election date, Uh not the paper signing incorporation day. This, I mean, this has been a whole thing with this series. Yeah. And, like, they have just, like, this jam-packed program where there is a Winnipeg All-Star Contest, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> An ice carnival, a golf tournament, um, a Winnipeg symphony performance with Gladys Swarthrout. Okay. An old-timers dance with a CBC broadcast of Prairie Schooner. A hats-off to Winnipeg Vaudeville Review, a teenager's dance and stage show. A Citizen's Day program with cultural dances. Kind of like an earlier folklorama at Assiniboine Park. Mm-hmm. This is organized by CBC and directed in part by Betty Ferrelli. Okay. There are lawn bowling, a parade, a big like block party in the North End, fireworks at the legislature. Hotels are booked solid. Wow. So people are actually opening up their homes as like billeters to guests. So thousands of people are coming in for this. Many of them are old Winnipeggers who want to come back and celebrate. Um... Mayor Garnet Coulter cuts open this huge cake in front of City Hall. Okay. Someone makes oh, an icing fun. sugar City Hall to put in their store window. Aw. Big elaborate stuff is happening. And the ballet performs as part of Winnipeg's 75th birthday party at the auditorium. This time the program is um, Romance, a romantic ballet. Oh. Which stars Jean McKenzie, Arnold Svor, and is choreographed by Gwyneth Lloyd. Um, ballet Composite. Which is choreographed in costume by uh, David Adams, the tits and teeth guy, <laughs> who described it as a neoclassical ballet, which might be termed a mathematical interpretation of Brahms' music. I don't know if that's complimentary. I don't know. Uh, part two of Swan Lake and chapter 13 again with the new uh, Robert Fleming music. And I, I would love to see a murder mystery ballet. It sounds I would so too, fun. Right? Oh, yeah. Maybe one day we'll get the chance. Can convince the RWV to put it on again? Stage it again, please. We're begging you. <laughs> um, so, despite all of the like public-facing success, the ballet is struggling financially. 
Which is maybe not a huge surprise. I mean, yeah, given everything we've heard. Well, what I was going to say earlier when you mentioned their, like, this cabin at Victoria Beach, I'm like, there must be a lot of just, like, family money being poured into this. Because, like, they're, like, at at the beginning, at least, not even charging for tuition. (laughs) Right. And apparently they have, like, multiple homes if they have a a house and (laughs) a cabin. Um. Yeah, so not everything from their first festival had even been paid off yet. Oh, no. Um, They're touring. Their tours aren't breaking even. And they're paying for a full orchestra. Oh, wow. Which is expensive. Yeah. So by the time we get to, like, mid to late 1949, they're in pretty dire straits. And um, a friend and supporter of the ballet, Lady Tupper, comes in and gives some pretty stern advice, which is become a nonprofit with an elected board or give up. Oh, you wow. can't do this. Okay. Um. So this is Margaret Tupper. She's really interesting. She's the wife of Sir Charles Tupper. Okay. Why? Where do I know him from? Oh, I'll look up what he is. I looked it up and then it was just like, eh. <laughs> he's someone in the Canadian government. We're running into a thing where there's a different Charles Tupper who died in 1915. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Regardless, like, mostly she has pretty like high profile connections. Her husband's not even a huge factor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So she's the daughter of an Ottawa lawyer. She had actually started a, like, mild career in theater when she was 11. She was Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Oh. She broke her nose. Someone was throwing a deck of cards at her as part of, like, a stage trick, and it hit her in the nose, and it broke. How? Whoa. Yeah. I don't know how that happens. I mean, I feel like you'd have to have a very fragile nose or a very bulky set of cards. Unclear. Um, she comes to Winnipeg in 1910 once she gets married, and then she starts just organizing Winnipeg arts organizations, mm-hmm. like, instantly. She helps run the Winnipeg Little Theater. Which will turn into empty sea a bit down the road. Oh, but cool. then she starts uh, beefing with their manager, and she just leaves. And then she bumps into Lloyd and Frawley in the 1930s, and is like, "I like you. I will help you forever." <laughs> Basically, cool. She's the one that tries to introduce them to David Udo over and over again <laughs> until they like each other. And Tupper was a bit of a terror. Okay, genuinely. Um, Lloyd described her as the original autocrat. She was always flaming and snorting at something. <laughs> Frawley said that if you stood up to her, she was all right. But if you kowtowed to her, she was pretty terrifying. Oh, interesting. So she is a um, one-woman steamroller. Uh-huh. Which, having worked for a nonprofit, you need that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is the person you want in your corner. Yeah. I mean, that's the person who goes out and gets money for the organization. Exactly. And that's essentially what she's been trying to do. And I yeah. think even she's like, writing's on the wall. We mm-hmm. have to do this or we like, it fails. Yeah. So um, she does make it kind of a family thing. Like she ropes her husband into being their accountant. Okay. And her daughter comes with her to meetings. And then she convinces Lloyd and Frelly that it would be okay to become a nonprofit. Both of them are actually pretty resistant to the idea at first. Because hmm. obviously having a board comes in changes how the company works, how the structure works, and how much creative control that you might have. That's true. So I think that's the worry for both of them. But um, it incorporates as a nonprofit in March of 1949. Dr. A.H.S. Gilson from the U of M was the president. Topper was the vice president. Udo was the manager, Lloyd was the director, and Frawley was the ballet mistress. And then Charles Topper, Margaret's husband, was the volunteer solicitor. Okay. The goal, then, is to get the finances under control. Because they are very much not. Right. So they have this, like, set of local programs and then a month-long Eastern Canadian tour. But this time they're only doing two new ballets. So they're not running a whole bunch of new ones with costumes. Okay, (laughs) yeah. One from David Adams and another from Lloyd. And this time they only have a two-piano accompaniment instead of a full orchestra. Yeah, I mean, 
that that'll make a difference. Yeah. Um, by November of 1949, they'd paid off their debts and had some money. Hey. At which point, Lady Tupper is like, maybe we should pay our dancers because we're not paying them very well, and right. they're going to leave to other companies if we don't do that. Yeah. So, they start to get paid. Not like a lot. I think. I can't remember how much it is. It's like a pretty modest amount, but mm-hmm. everyone is doing this because they like it. Yeah. And they like Lloyd and Frawley and they like the company. And also Winnipeg's not the most expensive place to live. Right. So going into 1950, we have kind of like a big year for Winnipeg and not just for the ballet, but they have two new performances. They have the shooting of Dan McGrew. Okay. It's an old poem. It's like a Western inspired That's fun. Ballet. A Western ballet also sounds so yeah. fun. And then imagine um, like the, how camp the costumes would be. Just like. I have pictures of the <gasps> costumes. Hold on. So this is chapter 13. Oh, that's awesome. And this is the shooting of Dan McGrew. <laughs> I love it. I mean, very Western. I feel like more like a stage play and less like a ballet than I would have expected. But I guess things hadn't been sort of standardized in that way, right? No, I mean, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And it's very much what they were doing. Yes. That's super fun. So yeah, fun ones. And then Arnold Sforer is doing his first go at choreography. Mm -hmm. He's been with the company for a while, and now he is doing his uh, own show called Ballet Premiere, which is just more of like a dancing showcase than like a Western-themed story. (laughs) Now, the big thing in 1950 is what we talked about at the start of the show, which was the flood. Yes. Which hits Winnipeg and sort of Manitoba in April of 1950 and lasts, like, a while. Mm-hmm. The water was the highest it had been since 1861. 100,000 residents of Manitoba are evacuated, which is about, like, wow. a third of the population of Winnipeg. Yeah. There's $125 million in damages, which is about a billion today. Oh, jeez. But the water takes time to rise. So, like, everyone is seeing it come up from the States and, like, oh, okay. make its so, way towards like, we're us. we're kind of able to prepare We know kind way. of what's coming. But it also means that, like, whatever they have planned kind of in the early spring isn't interrupted yet. So okay. the Pantages Playhouse doesn't flood. Mm-hmm. So the ballet puts on the shooting of Dan McGrew. It goes on without delay. Um, critic Frank Morris, who we talked about in our Winnipeg Free Press episode a little bit, was there and, like, raved about it. And this is just one of those weird things. Um, when this is happening, the Odeon Theater is playing Cinderella. Okay. This is when Cinderella comes out. Oh, like the like the Disney? The Disney or... animated oh. Cinderella is out at this time. I don't know why I was so charmed by that, but it kind yeah. of put things in perspective for like where we are. <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. And there's a very cute story underneath an article about like, shooting of Damagru was coming on where a reporter had gone to talk to some kids who had seen Cinderella and was like, what was your favorite part? Mm-hmm. And most kids are like, we liked Gus. He was very funny. Wait, who's Gus? Gus, I Gus, seen... the little mouse. Oh, the little the mouse. Little okay, mouse. got it. I and haven't then... seen Cinderella in like probably 20 years. One kid goes, I liked the bus ride. <laughs> <laughs> he liked the ride to get there. Aw, kids just, that's how they always are. <laughs> yep. Uh, four members of the ballet are returning from London around this time. Also, they'd gone there in March to take exams with the Royal Academy of Dancing. So that's Eva Von Jensi, Sheila Killo, Carlu Carter, and Leslie Carter, and Frederick Anthony. They all gained the solo seal, which is, like, the highest you can get. Okay. So, like, I don't know, good for Winnipeg dancers. The Valley's also going to organize a street fair called the Streets of Baghdad, which does get delayed because the floodwaters are now getting closer to Winnipeg as we get Mm. a little bit further into April and into May. Water shoot up pretty significantly in late May because there's a lot of rain. Which means streets are closing, uh, people are evacuating Winnipeg, and they're sandbagging efforts. The Winnipeg Tribune publishes a Dick Tracy comic in black and white with an apology being like, we had to take the printer out of the basement. Like, we don't have color ink right now because the basement flooded. (laughs) 
But as the floodwaters start to rise, uh, members of the ballet sort of team up to help. There's photos of Eva Von Jensi, John Walks, Arnold Sfor, and Leslie and Carlu Carter building dikes and sandbags. Oh, cool. And they're all hanging out on, like, the lines together and yeah. looking. Uh, Gwyneth and... So Lloyd and Ferrali actually help care for evacuated children at Red Cross headquarters. And they're not the only arts organization to get involved in flood, flood relief stuff. Uh, members of the Winnipeg Symphony also get involved. Wow. The symphony is new at this point. Mm. Uh, they had been established in 1947. They play their first concert in 1948. Okay, so this is a real period of, like, us building arts organizations. It really is, yeah. So the ballet has been using the symphony basically since their establishment. This is why all of their money is going. <laughs> it's going to paying the orchestra. Um, but the orchestra also teams up when the flood happens. Their business manager, James Henderson, is called back to the army to supervise flood projects. Um, Harold Hunter, another one of the members, is pumping basements. Okay. Church choir masters are helping with the Red Cross. Other entertainers are performing for sandbagging troops. I mean, I know, like, even, like, you know, like, high school students were called out of yeah. class to go and help. Like, a lot of people were involved in Well, you had to, these. right? Yeah. There's um, an operatic fundraising concert for oh. flood relief. <laughs> So, like, everyone involved in the arts seems to be really teaming up in, like, a very tangible way to help with this, yeah. like, massive disaster. And it's out of this flood that we get the public pressure from at least Duff Roblin to build a floodway mm -hmm. to redirect water around. So it's why that Winnipeg... It's why Winnipeg is in a flood in 1997. Right. But that's the big thing of the year is the flood. I think anyone will agree that in, <laughs> in 1950, Winnipeg had a flood. Yes. But it's also the year that we start to see some departures from that holy trinity. Lloyd oh. actually leaves the ballet. <gasps> she goes to Toronto to run the National Ballet there. Um, partially due Betrayal. To, well, it might have been because of some disputes with the board. Okay. Um, she wanted a lot more control than the board would allow, it seems mm -hmm. like. She wanted maybe to go on and do bigger projects. And also, she and Ferrali were caring for this child, essentially. Yep. And they wanted to send him to a boarding school and they had to raise money to do that. Oh, okay. I see. So they can't both be working on the passion project. One of them's got to be <laughs> earning, earning you... some an yep. income. <laughs> and then uh, Yudo also leaves due to tips with the board. Oh, wow. He stayed Okay, on what was going on with the board? It seems like just the board wanted to sort of ring the financials. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then people had big creative visions they couldn't quite get there with, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I can kind of see both sides of that, right? Right, yeah. Is, like, yeah. you want to do, like, the big, cool thing that you're inspired to do, yeah. but it's not always feasible. And yeah. I can see why that would be... And, like, you do sometimes need someone to be like, you know, we can't really do that. Yeah. But then also, I feel like it's a balancing act, right? You need someone to yeah. be like, we're going to do a crazy project. Yes. So, no, and I think especially if, like, just a couple years before you had been able to do whatever you totally. wanted. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, Yudo is still, like, helping with some touring productions for a little bit. Um, Ferrali gets married to a man named Ken Ripley for a little bit, and she sticks around, and the ballet becomes just, like, her whole life. She really trusts some members of the board, like John Russell, who mm -hmm. sticks around. Uh, Lady Tupper is still there. And the Richardsons. Oh. Of building and family fame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of their names are on everything. They are. So, yeah, the Richardson family is on the board. They help fund the ballet. Um, Kathleen Richardson specifically will step in a little bit to help them out. Mm -hmm. um, they have also the third Canadian Ballet Festival. This has been going on for three years now. Okay. Um, but this time, there are talks about creating a professional Canadian ballet company, mm -hmm. which is sparking some fears in Winnipeg that if that starts, all of our dancers will go there. 
Oh. And that Toronto, if they start it, will try and take credit for creating ballet in the country. <laughs> and I don't think they're wrong. No, yeah, that would have happened. So the National Ballet actually starts looking for dancers, and they reach out to Lillian Lewis, John McKenzie, and Arnold Sfor. These are the Winnipeg Ballet's top three dancers. Okay. None of them go. Okay. They say, we're not attending this meeting. We'll stay with Winnipeg. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's also some uh, pretty icy letters exchanged, it seems like, where the ballet is like, what do you mean? Like, you're trying to, like, start a new one. Yeah. Don't you know, like, the Winnipeg Ballet was first? (laughs) (laughs) This country ain't big enough for two ballets. (laughs) It's a little frosty for a bit there. Yeah. Things seem to have eased out since then, but... (laughs) We've gotten over it in the past 70 years. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. Oh, my God. But, like, I don't know. I could see being, like, pretty defensive about it. Yeah. Right? Like, wouldn't you be if you create this, like, pretty, like at least in Canada, recognized ballet, and then someone tries to come along and be like, we got here first to be the professional ones. Yeah, yeah. And I guess especially, too, because, like, they've had this whole system with the school kind of feeding into the ballet studio to then be like, oh, you're going to be, like, poaching our students. Exactly. Um, Moving into 1951, we get a very exciting visit. Okay. Do you know who it is? Is it someone royal? Yeah. Okay. I I guessed based on the name of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and the fact that we have not yet established yeah, why that why it's called that. We're trucking along there. Was it Princess Margaret? No. Elizabeth and Charles. Oh. The yeah. big ones. <laughs> the big ones. <laughs> not physically. No. The normal size royals. Well, maybe they're tiny. We don't know. That's true. I've never met them in person, so. <laughs> we have no possible way of knowing this. <laughs> So yeah, in 1951, amidst all this like financial struggle and this like other feud about another ballet opening, uh, there is going to be a royal tour of Canada. Okay. Uh, Princess Charles, or Princess Charles, jeez, uh, Princess Elizabeth and her husband Charles, who is now the king, um, are launching a North American tour visiting like a slew of Canadian and American cities. And when they arrive in Winnipeg, the visit's not great. Oh, the, no. we- the weather is bad. Yeah. Also, there's like a fun remark. My grandma went to this. Interesting. My grandma loved the royal family. Yeah. She has, she had a scrapbook of the royal family. That's very cute. So I guess people kind of got to see them, but they had to see them through like a- A tarp, yeah. basically. Uh-huh. A little plastic covering on their car. Yeah. I don't know if my grandma actually got to see them or not. Oh. I know she came in for it, but- yeah. Yeah, the weather's not cooperating, but people are still, like, there's so many people in that video of the crowd. Yeah. Thousands of people, they're all screaming, everyone's very excited. And it is actually a little bit hard to see them through that plastic, yeah. I will say. Um, the ballet wasn't initially, like, in the itinerary, like, when they started planning. Mm-hmm. Getting the ballet to perform for uh, Princess Elizabeth was largely the work of Lady Tupper again. Okay. Yeah. She uh, had been lobbying to get a command performance for the ballet. Mm-hmm. She talked to everyone she knew. She pestered and she pestered and the ballet was added to the itinerary before they launched the trip. Wow. Yeah. Because I imagine there must be a lot of competition for like what the you royal know, family does. What the royal yeah. family's time will be spent on. And they also receive a pretty good amount of criticism for what they don't do. Oh, what do When they they're do? in Winnipeg, they don't visit any of the hospitals. Okay. They don't visit any of the veterans. Right. Okay. So I think that some of the perspectives like, oh, like you're seeing this like hoity-toity arts organization uh, and not visiting like the working people. Right. But they actually like alter their itinerary for later trips. Like they stop by a couple military bases and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense, they I guess. They correct but... course. Yeah. I mean, we're like not that far out of a war at this point. Well, right? yeah. yeah. But Lady Tupper gets the ballet to perform, mm-hmm. which I'm sure she was so proud of. 
Yeah. I can't imagine how much work that would have taken to convince anyone planning a like trip for a royal family to change their itinerary. Yeah, and right. no, and I'm sure also like nerve wracking for the performers. Though. Yeah. It wasn't the first time the ballet had performed for the royal family. King George is in Winnipeg in 1939. The ballet yeah. danced for him. Yeah. But the the ballet thing for the queen is very for the queen for the princess is very elaborate. Mm-hmm. She shows up in this nice dress. She looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She does look a little bit like she had to put that coat on and wasn't planning on it, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Like it was maybe a little colder than she thought it would be. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so cold. Yeah. So she shows up in like a very sparkly gown. Oh, in yeah. In a very sparkly tiara. Tiara, yeah. And then she sits down in this little like a junior dancer with the company, Janie Adams, comes out and gives her a bouquet. So cute. And then curtsies and then like tiptoes away <laughs> backwards. Years later, one of their dancers, Jean Stoneham, is interviewed. And what she remembers is that she looked out, and what she could see was the tiara oh, listening yeah. in the lights of the stage. Cause I, so I, um, I did dance growing up, and I remember the recital. Like you always felt it was going to be scary, but then it's actually not that scary because when you're on stage, you really can't, can't see, see the anything. audience. Yeah. But yeah, I guess you would see that. That right? would see. Uh, Stoneham had been dancing for the ballet for a month or so when she had to perform for the wow. <laughs> um. One of their other dancers, uh, Sheila Killo, writes a personal apology to the Queen for the Dire show. They had been doing, like, more tragic performances. Uh-huh. And she was like, I just feel like the Queen would have, or the Princess would have liked a comedy. What? <laughs> and then uh, Gwyneth Lloyd says, poor Elizabeth, she must have hated every minute of it. She's not faintly interested in the ballet. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad that they, like, didn't feel good about the performance. No. It looked nice. It did. I mean, it looked great. Yeah. The performers looked lovely. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, the queen's very kind of stone-faced. It's I, hard to tell, right? Yeah. She watched politely, and then she went on her way. Yeah. As she is wont to do. <laughs> yeah. Or was wont to do, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but the show is still a success. I Can you imagine having the royal family in attendance would be like a huge... Oh, yeah. You'd want to try and get tickets to that for sure. So they actually made a profit, despite like the immense cost of the production, because mm. that... like. It costs a lot to impress someone fancy. Sure. <laughs> um, and then Queen goes on. The tour continues and the ballet is left back to their own devices. Mm-hmm. They do a little Western Canadian tour in 1952. They go off to Calgary where they get like accolades again. Um, Gwyneth Lloyd is in Toronto. She is fighting with everyone in Toronto about how Winnipeg is the originator of ballet in Canada. <laughs> She's taking out articles in newspapers. This is this is the role of every Winnipegger who goes to Toronto. <laughs> Um, she claims that the National Ballet is trying to take uh, too much credit okay. for, like, pushing ballet in Canada, and specifically that their prima donna is taking too much credit for Wow. Oh, no. So she's getting into, like, specific beef with an individual. Yes. She called her out in an article. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, and then for the Winnipeg Ballet, touring is becoming a pretty common source of revenue, but it's expensive to, like, cover costs for that. Mm-hmm. Um. Lady Tupper goes out and manages to secure a six-week tour in 1953 with all costs covered. Oh. Because she has kind of a more ambitious plan. Mm-hmm. Um, Winnipeg hasn't received its royal charter yet. Yeah. And I, it seems to be that Lady Tupper might have been the one to also be like, if you give Winnipeg's ballet a royal charter, it would look really good for us. Mm-hmm. So um, King George dies in 1952. Um, Elizabeth becomes queen a little bit later on, pretty shortly afterwards. And then... In 1953, um, the Queen gives the Winnipeg Ballet a royal charter because wow. the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, there's only two other royal ballet companies in the world hey. at this point, um, Danish and Swedish ballets. 
Cool. So Winnipeg is the third. Yeah. And as you can imagine, people are more willing to pay <laughs> that, for a slightly yeah. more prestigious ballet. Right. So this is what secures them the six-week tour with traveling costs covered. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of a fear around the time, too, that we are losing kind of Canadian culture in a lot okay. of ways to America. Because we're moving into the 50s. Almost everyone has a television. And it's becoming more popular, right? So, Oh, and I feel like this is the decade that, like, when I think of, like, what is American culture in its sort of purest form, I'm, like, thinking of stuff from the 50s, right? So we're getting all of that stuff on our televisions. And there is a worry that, like, our culture is going to become American culture. So the government of Canada starts starting to fund Canadian content. So CBC is put in charge of television. Mm Mm-hmm. They hadn't really been before. And then the National Film Board gets more funding than it ever had before. So um, with this in mind, James Richardson commissions a ballet from Gwyneth Lloyd, uh, composed by Robert Fleming, who had written the music for Chapter 13. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fleming is actually a composer with the uh, National Film Board. He has done, he did like 250. Okay, that's too many. Of their movies. (laughs) So Richardson's request is that it's like locally produced and it has like a Canadian theme to it. Mm. So... They create um, Shadow on the Prairie. Okay. And the National Film Board comes out to Winnipeg to film it specifically. Cool. Obviously, Fleming has some pull here because he works for them. But um, this is like, it tours officially in 1952. It's the first ballet written about Canada set in Canada and conceived by Canadians. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a kind of really important piece of like Canadian cultural history. But what do you think the plot is? To a to any kind of Canadian story. Okay, well, is okay. I feel like the classic Canadian story that we always joke about is like, I am so sad. I'm going to go into the forest and yeah, and find myself in the forest. What normally happens to women though in these things? Well, they die. Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, that's the second part of the story. Is I'm going to go into the forest to find myself and, and then die. die. <laughs> though I guess in this case it's the prairie, not the forest. Yeah. So. The plot of Shadow on the Prairies, a Scottish couple comes to the prairies, and a wife grows increasingly lonely and isolated over the long winter, despite oh the efforts God. of her husband this is the and her neighbors. This is Canadian story. And she dies. <laughs> I'm not laughing at... Like, it, it sounds like a very sad story, but... 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 I've just... I've read this so many times. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like we joke about it all the time. It's like, yeah, if we're thinking of classic Canadian literature in a lot of ways, it's a woman becomes so lonely. Yeah. She dies in nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For whatever reason. But um, Shadow on the Prairie is a huge hit. People love it. Oh. Um, Frank Morris calls it a definite work of Canadian art. It's a hit across the country, which is why it winds up being filmed. Um, there is a really, like, cute prairie part of it. We'll watch it for the bonus episode, where they da- they do part of a jig okay. in the middle of the dance. So that was, like, a little nice Manitoba touch. And, yeah, they get filmed. We have this on film still. Oh, cool. So we can watch that later. Um, they wind up watching another tour in 1953, this one, a cross-country one, and they lose money on it. <laughs> Touring is tough. Their next gambit to fundraise for the ballet is to get Joan Crawford to come out. Oh. Joan Crawford is busy. <laughs> I don't know why they picked Joan Crawford. Yeah. I'm sure it's in someone's notes somewhere, but I was offhandedly being like, what? Yeah. Okay, sure. I don't know if she has any, like, connection to the ballet, maybe. I don't know that much about Joan Crawford. Um, They wind up getting Alicia Markova, who's an English ballerina, who's obviously not as famous as Joan Crawford. Yeah. But she's a talented dancer, and she 
uh, comes around and dances for the Winnipeg Ballet and helps them make some money because she's like moderately well known. She's apparently also a little difficult to work with. Oh, just, I mean, Joan, like, just Joan like, Crawford would have been too. <laughs> too, right? Just a little fussy. The thing is, she was very good with the other dancers of the ballet and would like help them with technique. Okay. And then at one point was like, I don't like the costumes for this show. Hmm. I will pay for new costumes for everyone. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and according to everyone that knew this woman, they're like, that's weird that she did that. Yeah. So hmm. she liked the ballet. And then we hit a bigger touring snag in 1954. A much bigger one. Uh-oh. They're going to be playing in Sudbury with funding from some, like, fraternal group, and they back out because the ballet costs too much. And then the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers take over. What? <laughs> I don't know. They want to bring culture into okay. the town. into I the guess. mines. The thing is, leaders of that union are pretty vocal communists, to the point where they have been kicked out of, like, larger union organizations. Okay. And the tour is going to be going into the States immediately afterwards. Okay. To play in, like, Chicago. Oh. What was America's attitude towards communism in 1954? <laughs> Unfavorable. Yeah. So there was a, I think, probably very real fear for the ballet that if they associated with communists. Oh, that they're They American would be denied entry. Might not go, I see. Yeah. So like the day before their show in Sudbury, their dancers become ill and oh. can't possibly perform. Huh. And like That's the union too bad. keeps pitching like, well, what if we substitute these people? And like, it can't possibly happen. <laughs> Too cowardly to tell them that they couldn't dance for communists. Basically. <laughs> but they do get into the States. Okay. It's an interesting glimpse into, like, the political world. Yeah. I mean, that you know, I, I could see that being a difficult call. Yeah, right? You're like, you know, we're not really a political organization. We just want to do our dancing. And we have to do the tour because the tours historically are how we make money. Yeah. That's tough. So, yeah. So but they, then, like, it does also suck that they're like, no, we're not going to do the dance for, like, the miners. Yeah. Or whatever. For the people in Sudbury. Yeah. Um, Sponsored by the, for the, by the mining union. union. I don't know. Sure. Sudbury's a mining town. That's not a huge surprise. Right. Um, so they do their tour in the States and they come back. And then things get, like, worse. Oh. 1954 is a bad year for the ballet and a bad year for Winnipeg. Is it? What happens? It sees its worst ever fire on June 7th. Oh, no. Um, there's, like, wiring on an electrical sign outside of 33 uh, Portage Avenue. It's a stormy night, so when the wire malfunctions and there's a spark, the wind blows it. Oh. And a huge fire spreads. It's caught quickly enough. There's, like, a fire alarm rung at 1.20 a.m., another one at um, 40 minutes later, and another one at 6. But there's 200 men, like, firefighters, wow. trying to fight this with, like, special equipment but you couldn't do much. Um, three buildings are completely destroyed. Jeez. Um, there's $3 million in damages. Oh, it's five buildings were completely destroyed. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, 100 businesses. And this includes the Winnipeg Ballet. Because their <gasps> offices were in 333 Portage. Right. Ballet. I was thinking that was yeah. that was the same building. So apparently Ferrelli gets a call at about 6 in the morning saying the ballet is on fire. And she uh -oh. goes, you're kidding. Like, stop it. <laughs> Oh, no. And then is, like, convinced that it's real. And is like, oh, God, oh, no. And yeah. then is interviewed later being like, if we had been told sooner, we would have run into the building to get our stuff. I mean, probably good they weren't told sooner. <laughs> yeah, then. exactly. Uh, Lloyd is still in Toronto yeah. when this happened. She hears about it because there's a billboard on Young Street saying, like, huge fire in Winnipeg. And she goes, I should check out that paper and buys it. Yeah. Reads the article and then goes to her friend's place to lie down for hours. I mean, that would be so worrying. It was, in her own words, the worst she'd ever felt. Yeah. Um. In that office was all of their costumes, all of their scores, all of their scripts, everything the ballet had ever done oh, since 1938. No. Oh, that's awful. It was devastating. Yeah. And it's why we don't have 
like the old scores oh. and like some of that old stuff. Oh no, so we can't put on chapter 13. No, we can make an approximation. Gershwin's concerto is still there. Yeah. But yeah, like all of that original stuff is gone. Mm-hmm. And now the ballet's in even more debt because all of their stuff is gone. Right. And they can't, you know, I'm like often theater productions reuse costumes and yeah. yeah. No, you can't even do that. So the public starts to raise funds. Mm-hmm. Um, a little boy sends in a dollar for costumes. Aww. Um, but it takes time to do this, especially to like rebuild an entire dance company that's been doing this since the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, dancers start to leave and find work elsewhere. Oh, so they no. leave. The, they start losing their company. Um, Frank Morris. Are we sure that Toronto wasn't responsible for this? <laughs> <laughs> they sent one guy out to like snip a wire. Frank Morris writes a whole column chiding the board about letting the dancers go. Oh. Frank Morris with this whole thing, he is a like a Winnipeg Free Press critic. Yeah. Is so on the ballet's side. Hmm. When Lloyd goes to Toronto for the first time, he's one of the people at the station to see her off. Huh. Yeah. Just a just a big ballet advocate. He would also make a joke that his daughter had a huge crush on all of the male ballerinas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at this point in time, though, the ballet is running out of an old liquor store. Oh, no. Yeah. So one of their dancers, Jean McKenzie, her father has a bit more money, and he starts fundraising. And then the province gives them a grant. And then uh, Kathleen Richardson gives them a conditional uh, five grant. Okay. The condition is that they have to have more money to, like, prove they can keep running, and that they're not going to go broke instantly again. Mm-hmm. Not everyone loves this. Um, no, that's pretty common with, like, grants and stuff, though, that you're supposed you to get, to like, matching, matching funds, Exactly, right? yeah. But, yeah, there's, like, still some support from, like, the higher-ups in Winnipeg. One city councillor, um, David Mulligan, asks why we're giving money to a bunch of galloping glutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then um, is pedantically reminded that, like, well, actually, glutes are typically clumsy and ballerinas aren't. And actually, they're not galloping, they're dancing. dancing. Um, the thing is, there is so much public outrage mm-hmm. to Mulligan's comment <gasps> that the ballet gets more money. <laughs> so, like... Yeah, they make enough money to keep going, and they keep trucking along, but there is such a real chance that we could have lost the whole ballet yeah. in that year. Yeah. It's just, like, tough, like, determination to do it. And, like, internally, it's tough, too. Lloyd officially leaves. Oh, really? She had been holding on to the title of artistic director for most of this period, and now yeah. she's just the founding director. Mm-hmm. Frawley becomes the artistic director in 1955. Yado officially, like, cuts ties and stops touring with them. Um, they hire a guy named Ned Lotka. As a ballet master, he's hired after uh, Ferali had suggested someone else. Oh. Latka was a Yugoslavian dancer. Um, Arnold Sword actually pr- like applied for the position of ballet master and had been told, like, you're not a good fit. Hmm. He'd been off, like, doing other artistic endeavors for a while. Yeah. And I guess they're like, you have too many other interests. Right. Get out of here. Um, Patty Stone comes back. He writes them a show. And they start again as a company of 22 dancers in September of 1955. They okay. had around 45 before that. Oh. So the company's like cut in half. That's rough. Some dancers uh, come back. Carlu Carter and Bill McGrath both do. This time they come back as like principals of the main dancers. Mm. And they launch their like first performance back in Brandon in 1955 at the dry run. Uh, Gwyneth Lloyd comes to come see her ballet back Aww. in action. Uh, Lady Eaton tells them that a phoenix has risen from the ashes. That's nice. Uh, they also get uh, Ruthanna Boris, who's a New York dancer who comes in with her husband, Frank. And then Boris, Lodka, and Ferrelli start fighting. Uh-oh. They all have very different ideas. Okay. Ferrelli has been there for years. This is her baby. She cares about it a lot. Right. Um, Lodka 
wants to do more like European dancing. Boris is New York, like a New Yorker and has more like New York inspired ideas mm-hmm. about what the ballet should look like and none of them can agree. Right. So they start to leave. <laughs> um, but despite all of these like internal feuds, new dancers do keep coming in. Like people are coming in from like the UK because they hear about how good the dancers oh. are in Winnipeg. So it does okay. And then... I guess, you know, the talent is still there. Like, the founding principles well, are still there. Exactly. It's... And the dancers, like, the dance school is good. Everyone yeah. involved cares so much about it. Um, so Lotka leaves eventually. And then Frawley will leave, too, in 1957. So there's... The original group is now completely mm-hmm. gone. That's the whole trolley, Holy Trinity out. Yeah. Uh, they hire a guy named Benjamin Harcarvey as the artistic director for a little bit. He's not there for very long. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, uh, Arnold Spore takes on the role, finally. Oh. Our big, our flat-footed dancer comes back. <laughs> and he wasn't even sure if he wanted the job at first, but at this point, Lloyd and Ferrelli are gone. Mm-hmm. They are, they'd gone off to Kelowna together to run a dance school there, and they'd apparently rent, bought, like, a nice little log cabin. Oh, that's nice. It's very cute. So, when he's thinking about taking the job, he calls both of them and is like, should I take this job? Mm-hmm. And Ferrelli says, you would be crazy. Don't. Okay. And Lloyd goes, give it a try! Why not? <laughs> So he he takes it on and he gets the job, but there's a sense that his like job is temporary. Mm-hmm. There's a really good quote in um, this book, Dancing Through Time, that I think sums up the idea pretty well of what's going on here, which was everybody knew that local men were not qualified to lead a local arts organization. You needed someone from England, the States, or Europe for that. Hmm. And I think that's still kind of an idea we're stuck with a lot Yeah. and ev- everything. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of the time when we're like... Even, you know, when local organizations are, like, looking for, like, new executive directors, often they're, like... Looking for someone from, like, Toronto or BC or someone, like, bigger, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting that this idea that, like, well, no one local could, like, do this. No one local could, like... But Svor has been with the company basically since its inception. Yeah. He's traveled internationally. If anyone could do it, it's gonna be him. Yeah. And there's something really valuable, too, to having someone with, like, local knowledge and... Yeah. And the thing is, he sticks around. He's there for 30 years. Oh, my God. And under Sford, the ballet, like, completely regains its footing. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Ferrali and Lloyd, like, I'm assuming are still in contact with him because they're good friends. Yeah. And they watch from Kelowna, but Sford does everything. He is in charge of teaching, rehearsals, um, coordinating with the costume and props, finding funding. So he works, like, 20-hour days to wow. try and get this ballet running again. Wow. And he does. He manages it. Apparently, he's a little bit, like, brusque or, like, rude in rehearsals to mm-hmm. try and get people, like, inch back on track and stuff. The story would go that he would yell at a dancer and they'd be like, I'm so sorry. Are we, like, are we okay? Are we friends? Because <laughs> outside of that, he's, like, a pretty sweet guy. He has a lot of friends. He's good at fundraising. Yeah. And there's a reason he's in charge for 30 years. Sure. Yeah. It's a very long time. I mean, that's got to be a stressful thing to be trying to, like, single-handedly bring back a, a, a- company that literally burned to the ground. Yeah. And, like, we could probably do a whole more about his, te- like, his tenure there, because it's mm-hmm. really interesting. This is when we get, like, Evelyn Hart and Rachel Brown of oh. Rachel Brown Theatre dancing with the ballet. Oh. Um, but we don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's still, like, remnants of Lloyd and Frawley's influence here, obviously. And they get more recognition a little bit later on. They both become um, officers of the Order of Canada in 77 and 81. And... They're not super involved with the ballet outside of that. There was an interview with them years later being like, oh, if the ballet comes to Vancouver, we drive no matter the weather to see our ballet. Oh, that's nice. And they get like all misty eyed about it and stuff. But then there's a big 40th anniversary party for the ballet. 
and a bunch of former members come, including Frawley, Lloyd, Eva Von Jensi, Gene Stoneham, Gene McKenzie, and then Arnold's Four giving this speech says, Thank you, dear Gwyneth Lloyd, Betty Frawley, and David Didot for being my friends. Thank you for teaching me so well, giving me care, time, discipline, and preparing my artistic life. You gave me a legacy that I have committed with this, that I have continued with this company. It's very sweet. Isn't it? So yeah, this is how we get the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Is cool. this like group of people who just really, really cared about the ballet yeah. in the city, which is very sweet. But they're coming at it in a time where Winnipeg is really working to sort of forge its own artistic identity. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this comes out of this like fear of like, oh God, America's too close. Right. <laughs> we can't watch too much Johnny Carson. Yeah, I mean, you know, Winnipeg, like you say, we've got our 75th anniversary in here. I wonder if there's sort of a feeling that like, okay, we need to be like a real place now with the right. culture and with... Yeah, exactly. But it's crazy how much comes out of this time period. Because it's mm-hmm. not just the ballet and the symphony. Rainbow Stage is constructed in 1954. I had no idea it was that old. It is. It is um, the... I think it's the longest operating outdoor theater and one of the first yeah. in Canada. Cool. Um, in 1958, John Hirsch and Tom Hendry form MTC out of the Little Winnipeg Theater in Theater 77. So mm-hmm. we get the first regional English regional theater in Canada in the same decade. Wow. It's crazy how much comes out of this. And, like, obviously the film board's coming out. CBC is coming out to film this stuff. Yeah. Winnipeg is, like, kind of an arts hub at the time. Yeah. And we get a lot of these, like, really crazy firsts that I think we don't always recognize. Yeah. And I I do think, like, for a city of this size, we do have a pretty significant arts community. We do. Even now, like, all all of these organizations are still here, which is also, like, I think suggests the support they receive from, like, everyone. Yeah. I see MTC shows all the time. Yeah. I'm going to the ballet in, like, two weeks. Yeah. The episode inspired me. <laughs> I th- What show are you going to see? Uh, Snow White. Ooh, cool. I know. It'll be fun. Yeah. No, and I think, like, one of the, like, kind of cool contradictions I think about Winnipeg is that, like, we'll all go to the ballet and go in our khakis. You know? Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and every time it's like, what do I wear? And I'm like... Doesn't matter. Who's to say? Yeah. You can wear whatever you wanted. And people will be like... Well, okay. You can wear a ball gown or your jeans. Both are equally I used acceptable. To go, when I was in high school, we had a package to go to MTC as like a high school group. And we'd mm-hmm. all take the bus out and we'd all dress up like decently well because we'd yeah. all go to like my house and like curl our hair in the basement. And there was a woman that sat like two rows behind us who always wore like a sparkly gown Aww. every time. We were always like, oh, what gown she wearing today? Yeah. <laughs> the one uh, difference between then and now, like we have these organizations, but now every single one of these organizations has their own space. Mm built for them right in the 50s they are all using older buildings so the ballet gets a start at the pantages playhouse theater the symphony plays out of the auditorium which is now the provincial archives um mtc starts at the dominion theater at portage in maine that's just like gone now okay they're all in these like kind of tiny older theaters Mm -hmm. and like today i think we'd probably celebrate that a little bit more yeah like the reusing of old spaces but there's not a lot of seating (laughs) yeah first of all and we're not at a time in Winnipeg history where we're, like, keen to celebrate all of that old stuff. We're trying to forge, like, a sure. new identity, right? Yeah. And these old buildings aren't helping us do that. No, I guess, like, in the next episode, maybe, we'll talk more about, like, the new buildings That's what stuff. I'm going to talk about. Okay, Because yeah. in 1956, we get a mayor who really wants to modernize Winnipeg. And he has a lot of ideas on how yeah. to do so. And, oh boy, will he tell you about them. <laughs> Some of them are... Better than others. Sure. And some are real stinkers. <laughs> but it's Stephen Juba. Yeah. It's going to be our next topic. And we'll talk about some of the stuff Juba did that impacts stuff like the ballet and our arts organizations. He's the reason we have our little modernist district downtown that they're all in. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, with the buildings that some people like better than oh, others. others. <laughs> They're a hot topic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the ballet. Very nice. That was a really, like, nice uplifting story, <laughs> I feel like. I felt like we needed one. Yeah. Just a nice little time to talk about how lucky we are that Winnipeg has these cool arts organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to... Uh, the Winnipeg Foundation Centennial Institute grant for their support, the Provinces of Manitoba's Heritage Grant, Manitoba Historical Society, and the Winnipeg Free Press for the support of this project. Thank you to our Patreons also for yeah. supporting us the whole way through from beginning to end and even afterwards. We really appreciate it. We've got all kinds of fun bonus episodes on there. Uh, post-mortem episode discussions where we talk about sources we left out. Probably the movie of Shadow on the Prairie. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, you'll like it a lot, I think. So you can check that out at um, patreon.com forward slash one great history and see what other fun stuff we have tucked away in there. If you want to check out any pictures of the dances, the costumes, the people involved, that'll all be on our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com with all of my sources for the episode. There are lots of really good books in the ballet. Oh, good. I had such an easy time with this episode. <laughs> it's shocking. <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah. Um, and we'll post some photos on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter about from the episodes. You can check that out on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History. We are on Twitter at the number one Great History. Thank you so much for listening. I feel like we could have a fire per episode without trying them very hard. <laughs> what if the 150 series was 15 different 15 fires? fires. <laughs> 15 fires that decimated our city. <laughs> fires that made us <laughs> the, we good yeah we're good okay sounds good